What's up, everybody? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Yo, man, y'all look beautiful. Very grateful to be in the building with you all today. Shout out to everybody joining us online. Uh, Before we uh, turn to God's word in scripture, I want to pray for us. I know we've been, many of you have been to church hundreds and hundreds of times. I never want this time to be a time where we just kind of expect, you know, a sermon, a couple of random jokes, but rather to invite uh, the Lord into our hearts to this moment to speak to us wherever we are. So Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that in this moment, uh, Lord, you would meet us exactly where we are. You would remind us that you are with us. You would comfort us in ways that you know we need to be comforted. The fears that we have plaguing in our brains, Lord, I pray that you would quiet those fears. Lord, you would challenge us in areas that we need to be challenged and everything in between. Most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would bless me to be clear and uh, something that people can understand, uh, knowing that... It will hopefully bring you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So one of the joys I love about being in Harlem and being in Renaissance is like I always see people in the community when I'm out. A lot of times it's more difficult now to recognize people, you know, mask up above your nose. But I see people all the time. And one of the things that I feel like I need to apologize for sometimes, people will like call my name out and I just won't respond because I'm normally listening to a podcast. And people, I don't want anybody, if this is you, to feel like, you know, that dude just ignored me on the street. Um, But one of the podcasts that I listen to is the nerdiest podcast on the world, in the planet. It is called This Week in Virology. It's like two and a half hours long of these dudes bantering about virology. And obviously in the pandemic, some of these things uh, make a lot of sense now. Uh, And it's super helpful. And I try to tell my wife about like, oh, the episode today. And I know that I have like 35 seconds. (laughs) to tell her about something before she just completely blanks out. And uh, one of the things that's fascinating is really how science works. Like, so over the years, scientists have these wild hypotheses, and some of the times that these things are just like so wrong. Even at the beginning of the pandemic, scientists thought one thing or another thing, and you see how um, the process refines itself, and they come to better conclusions along the way. If you were to rewind time a couple of hundred years, actually, you would go back to a time where, like in the late 1800s, they believed in something called spontaneous generation. In the late 1800s, they believed in this principle that disease and everything basically just came out of nowhere. That if you got sick, oftentimes they believed it was like God's will, that God would just kind of like put something in front of you and then you would get sick. Now, years later, obviously that's pretty funny to us, and that's because there was a man named Louis Pasteur that came along in the late 1800s and said, no, there is no such thing as spontaneous generation. There are these little invisible things, these germs, these bacteria, these uh, virion, these viruses, that they are alive and they are powerful even though we can't see them. And these invisible things are controlling the world that we do see. Now, some doctors caught on and they started washing their hands and practicing uh, safer practices, but other doctors looked at him and said, man, you're crazy. You mean to tell me that there are these invisible little particles that travel through the air or they live on surfaces and they are controlling the world that I do see, to which Louis Pasteur said, yes, absolutely. Now, nowadays, we're all masked up in this room right now and masked up as we go to different places in our life now because we know this not to be a theory, but to be a fact. There is a microscope that has shown us bacteria and all of this uh, microscopic uh, uh, biology and all all the different things. I got D's in science, so I won't 
talk too much about this. They show us things. <laughs> Invisible things that impact and control our visible world. Now, the issue for us today, actually, is that there is another world that Scripture talks about that's invisible. It's something that is powerful. It controls your worldview. It controls your attitudes. It controls your relationships. It controls so much about you, and you don't see it right in front of you, in front of your face. You know, 2,000 years ago, well before Louis Pasteur introduced this concept of microbiology, uh, Jesus talked about something in profound ways. Jesus said that the way that you and I relate to him, the way that you and I relate to God our Father, the way that you and I relate to money specifically, it's not spontaneous. The way that you and I spend money isn't random. It's not disconnected. But rather, it's something that changes everything and impacts everything about us, even though we don't see it on the surface. The way that you and I spend money, Jesus would come along and say that this is kind of like the microscope into our hearts. That if you want to know the condition of your heart, you should evaluate the way that you interact with and relate to money. Now, Jesus would, uh, would say something in the scripture in Matthew 6 and 19 that I want to first acknowledge that. It reads a little tough. I'm not going to lie. Jesus is coming for our next a little bit when he says these things. But Jesus basically is telling you, your heart, it's not where you and how loudly you sing worship songs. Your heart is where your money is. Jesus says in Matthew 6 and 19, he says, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one, none of us can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, when Jesus talks about the heart, it means our, our, the deepest part of who we are. The microscope to our hearts is where our treasures are. That if you want to see the invisible nature of your heart, the thing that you cannot see, Jesus says, hop on a microscope of money and we'll show you what you and I actually believe and love. Here's what Jesus is talking about. Here's a sticky statement we're going to be looking at today. Your relationship to money matters more than you think. Most of us today didn't come to church wanting to hear a message about this. You got real issues, right? You got relationship stuff. You have other issues going on in your life. There are people who are, who are sick. We got this pandemic going on. We have uncertainty. We have all of these different things uh, going on around us. You know, over the past eight years, I've had a lot of people uh, come into my office or on a Zoom call talk about some real big challenges and struggles that they have. I've heard the worst confessions that you can imagine. A couple months ago, this guy came on Zoom and was telling me that he, he loves Tom Brady, and I was like, man, how do we... <laughs> You're going to admit that just out loud and proud about that. In all seriousness, uh, people 
trust me enough to, to share their real lives with me, and, I, and I, I take that as a true privilege and an honor. But over the past eight years, I can count on two fingers times that people have told me they struggle with money and generosity and their relationship to money. But if you were to read the New Testament, Jesus over and over again talks about money not as something that's kind of dangerous, but something that is primarily in the greatest danger to Jesus truly being the real source of security and significance in our life and something that we don't even talk about or, or, or think about. Now, Jesus talks about it because the way that you and I view money, the way that you and I relate to money, the way that I use money, spend money, save money, give money, is a microscope to our hearts and what we actually have in terms of a relationship with Jesus. Now, if you get nothing else, hear this. What Jesus is after in our life is not that he would be the Lord of your lips, of your confession, the things that you say, but rather he would be the Lord of your life, that he is functionally in the place where you would say Jesus is Lord, which means that he has access to the totality of your life. And Jesus' greatest rival to being the Lord of your life is money. It's a powerful thing. Now, I want to give a couple of caveats before we go too deep today. Number one, I know some people in here for sure have uh, entered today, and your problem is not with spending. Your problem is that, listen, you need to be talking to these bill collectors because I have more months than I have money. And that you have come in here today <laughs> feeling the weight, seriously, feeling the real weight of debt. And the last thing you want to hear is some sermon making you feel guilty about not giving more because you got real bills um, that are real pressures. And, you know, certainly in life, um, in our church, when we start off emails by saying, what's up, family? Our hope is that we would be a family, deeply, practically, and actually committed to one another. Man, our leaders and our pastors and our, and our deacons are so amazing. Um, we spend so much money every year, and we're trying to be as generous as possible. So if you are a part of Renaissance, and if you came in here today feeling the weight of bills, we want to take that weight off of you. So here's what we want, here's what we want you to do. I want you to email grace at NYC if you're struggling financially, and one of our deacons will reach out to you. Give it about 72 hours and somebody will reach out. And that's grace, the theological concept, not the person. People always start out emails, hey, Grace, how you doing? It's like, no, it's not. It's a beautiful name. It is a very beautiful name. And somebody will follow up with you because we don't, want you, we don't want you living like that. Our church is very generous, and we set aside money to make sure practical and real needs are being met. And we want that to be you in your life. So that's number one. Yeah, thank, yes, yes, that's really good. And we're able to do that because you're such a generous church. Second thing, whenever you talk about money, particularly as it impacts us personally, one of the challenges of American Christianity, it is, it is highly individualized, which means when we talk about a topic, we talk about it from an individual standpoint, and oftentimes we ignore and miss out on all of the social dynamics at play with money. Specifically, in America, people have been able to generate wealth at a pace that far exceeds others, not because of hard work, diligence, but rather because of oppression. Now, I know this to be true in my own family. Uh, my grandmother grew up in Ripley, Tennessee in, um, in the 19-teens and 20s, and I don't know what level of education she uh, was able to acquire. It definitely did not exceed elementary school. But since she was a little girl, in order to put food on her table for her family, they had to be sharecroppers. And 
for the first couple of decades of her life, that's what she did. And they would work the entire year, and at the end of the year, either break even or sometimes owe them money. I'll never forget growing up, and um, my grandmother would come to our house, and we'd, we'd play card games, and my brother and I would cheat her at different things. And then, you know, she would, like, she would like organize our drawers and like fix different stuff. She was so, so good with, with different things. And I, I remember one time marveling and being so fascinated, and I had no idea how it got to be what it was. And I was just a little kid, so there was no way for me to understand all of the implications of this. But as she was sewing stuff, she never needed a thimble. And I had taken like one of these home ec classes, like, no, Grandma, you need to put a thimble in your thumb so you don't, get, so you don't hurt yourself. But she didn't need it because her thumbs were so callous from picking cotton for decades. And what does it mean to pick cotton for decades and to leave Ripley, Tennessee on a bus with zero dollars to your name, even though you worked harder than anybody else? What does that do to you generationally? Now, by the grace of God, God has been very gracious to our family, and my father was able to really overcome a lot of odds, even though being born in, uh, in poverty in Buffalo and going to start his own law firm and all these different things. But in so many ways, we are the exception, not the norm. So as we talk about money in this, today and in this series, I don't want us thinking that, oh, this is purely an individual aspect. This is not purely an indiv- individual aspect. It is a both and. There are some things that God wants from you and for you today, but there are some other things that considerations with respect to justice that I want us also consider, being considerate of. So if you are a person who says, man, I really want to work towards justice and see uh, wrongs righted, uh, an organization that we've been working with for the last year called Pray, March, Act has its kickoff event uh, for everybody who wants to be a policy action partner, that means you. If you want to be a person who works towards seeing unjust laws and policies and practices overturned in our city, in our state, in our country, we would invite you to be a part of of PMA, a Pray March Act. Uh, The meeting is this Thursday at 7 p.m. The best way to get more information about that is to follow on our social channels on Instagram, I'm sure we'll have some stuff uh, this week, or to go to PrayMarchAct.org and sign up for that this Thursday at, uh, at 7 p.m. So caveats aside, I, I also want us making sure that we are not externalizing the issues completely, because I also don't want you thinking so much about justice that you're not thinking about the way you deal with money. So let's get into the scripture for us today. Verse 19 through 21, Jesus says these words, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, the first thing that Jesus does when he's talking about money in the scripture is he's letting us know of the impermanent nature of it that you can store up as much money as you think is possible, and money could never for us truly be real security. Money is not security. It doesn't matter how much you have. Now, the illustration that Jesus uses in this text is saying that moth and rust destroy it, and where thieves break in and steal it. And what Jesus was inviting us to consider and to contemplate is that something can always happen to it, and it doesn't give you real security. Now, in life... All of us in this room are one phone call away from our life turning upside down. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how many zeros in your bank account with an actual digit in front of it. (laughs) All of us are one phone call away from our lives turning upside down. And Jesus is telling us money is not real security. 
Years ago, my wife and I went to Mexico City for a baby moon. Uh, baby moons are a recent uh, thing that has been made up. They're a great idea, I'll tell you that. Especially for husbands, because you can just go and really enjoy it, because you, you don't have the discomfort of pregnancy. Uh, so, uh, pregnant women, I'm sorry for even uh, talking about these things. And we went to one of my favorite cities, man, Mexico City. Yo, if you've never been, go. It is one of the greatest cities on, on the planet. It's phenomenal. The food is incredible. And my wife, whenever we travel, she loves to go to all of these like boutique-like hotels. So we went to this hotel. The art and stuff was beautiful. But in the hotel room, like maybe it was because of the aesthetic, but they didn't have like the double bolt on the door. So, you know, I didn't think too much of it. But the last night we were there in the hotel before we were about to fly out the next day, it was like 11.30 at night and we were in bed and I heard someone come in the room. So Jess was pregnant. I picked her up and I threw her in front of me. And <laughs> now I got a yellow belt in karate, so I was ready to uh, defend. But no, but the guy, was, the, guy the, the front desk gave a person uh, the keys to our room. It was a mistake. He was mortified. He, he left the room like in one second. But I felt secure up until the moment that I realized that I wasn't. Now, if we were to go down the life, all of our life stories, there are any number of scenarios where you felt secure, you felt stable, until you realized you were not. Here's what Jesus is telling us in the first part of this uh, teaching. If you think money is going to make you secure, it won't. Even if you look at, you know, the past couple of years uh, when Steve Jobs died, you know, he is obviously an extremely, he was an extremely wealthy man, and I'm sure he had the top-notch cancer research on the planet, and he still died. All of us are mortal, and if we seek for immortality, money is not the thing that's going to get it to us. So money is not security for us. Another challenge for us is that money is, it's deceptive. Money is deceptive, and here's what Jesus says in verses 22 and 23. He says, the eye is a lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Now, oftentimes when Jesus teaches in concepts of light and darkness, what Jesus is getting at and what they would have understood in terms of like a lamp and light and darkness is the ability to see and the ability to perceive. And in the dark, you cannot see and you cannot perceive things the way that they are. It's muddled. It's not possible to see them clearly. And Jesus says that if our eyes are dark, if our eyes are not seeing things clearly, then it's not just money that we're seeing incorrectly, that we're seeing our entire lives incorrectly. And money has a power to, to blind us. Case in point, um, who in here is rich? Raise your hands really, and stand up. <laughs> if you make more than $55,000, you belong to the global 1%. You are wealthy. The phones in your pocket cost more than some people's yearly salaries. Yearly salaries. People in other countries would look at us and be astonished and be surprised at how blind we are to the, the opulence and the riches that, as that is at so many of our disposal here in, in America and in New York City with so much money flowing around. Gallup did a poll and they asked people, what do you consider rich? And everybody basically said rich was twice as much money as they were earning. So we all have these blinders on where we think everybody else is rich, when in reality, like you are the 1% if you make $55,000 a year. But none of us feel 
like we are a part of the 1%, unless you really are a part of the 1% of the 1% and you know you're balling, in which case this sermon doesn't apply to you right now. <laughs> Why is it that so many of us don't think that we have a lot when we have so much? There's so many times when you decide to upgrade a phone that works perfectly, which I do a lot, yearly actually. <laughs> the phone is great. Ah, I mean, the telephoto lens, this one is like 3X instead of 2.5X. Man, we have so much, and we don't think we have a lot because that's what money does. Money blinds us. Money makes us feel like we don't have enough of it. And this is the thing about appetites. With all of our appetites, the most important word with all of our appetites is, is more. They're never satisfied. There never is going to come a point where you feel like naturally on your own, without the intervention of the Holy Spirit and a lot of community and people around you will say, oh, I actually do have enough right now. And we live with this blindness, this deception that money is something that we don't struggle with when in so many different ways we do. So when it comes time to be generous, we say, man, yo, once Biden forgives these loans, he, stopped, he need to stop acting up because once Biden forgives these loans, I'm going to be generous. Or, you know, um, any number of things. Once I get this new job, uh, once, my get, once my tax refund hits, um, or I don't trust the way that they spend money and all these different things, so I don't know, I'm going to keep it to myself right now, and you've been saying that for the last six years. Uh, we struggle so much to see ourselves accurately with respect to money. It's because money in and of itself is it's deceiving. Here's what Howard Thurman says about deception. Uh, Howard Thurman says, the penalty of deception is to become a deception with all sense of moral discrimination destroyed. A man who lies habitually becomes a lie, and it is increasingly impossible for him to know when he is lying and when he is not. With respect to money deceiving us, those of us who trust in money, we become like it. We become dumb and deaf and unable to navigate just like money is, as it says in Psalm 115, that those who trust in idols will become like them. So Jesus is giving us some very sobering words here, and I don't want us to, be, to miss out on that. Paul in 1 Timothy uh, 6 and 17 says this, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Now, I'm, I didn't say this in the first service, um, but I, I, that last part of the... 1 Timothy 6 and 17, I want to highlight this right now. God provides us with things to enjoy. God does not want us to be miserable. And I, I don't want us going to the other side that believing that God is this curmudgeon who doesn't want us to enjoy things. God put good things in front of us to enjoy. God just wants us to enjoy them in accordance with his will and his way and how he wants things to happen. So money is definitely not security. Um, and money is definitely not uh, real significance um, and Jesus lets us know even further that the love of money is, is dangerous. The love of money is dangerous. Now, if you go past any street theologian, they'll tell you that money is the root of all evil, and money is not the root of all evil. Jesus had money, and he had a treasurer. Jesus had someone carrying the bag with him. Jesus was not a broke boy. So money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money is incredibly dangerous. What does it mean by love? What does it mean by love? What do you cherish? 
What warms your heart? What comforts you? What gives you encouragement and hope? Now, Jesus tells us in the scripture that no one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What Jesus wants us to know in this, and what Jesus wants you to know, and what he wants me to know, is that our affection and our devotion will be to God or to money, but it will never be to both, and not at the same time. Now, again, money in and of itself is, is not the problem. Uh, a preacher once used this illustration that money is like water to a boat. Water is useful to a boat as it helps people and sailors sail better. But if the water gets into the boat, if it's not pumped out, it will drown it. Money and wealth are the same thing. Money is useful and it's convenient for our passage through life. We sail more comfortably with it than without it. But if water gets into the boat of our hearts, if the love of riches get into our heart, then we can become drowned by them. Now, one of my boys, Rich Velotis, at New Life Fellowship in Queens, one of the dopest pastors in New York City, uh, on his Twitter feed he, uh, the other day, he was talking about his giving and how he views giving. And I was like, man, that's such a profound way to say it. Essentially, he was saying that, that there have been times in his life where he was incredibly generous and God did not bless him in his life. And there have been times when he was not generous at all, and God did bless him in his life. So us being generous and generous people is not about controlling God. God cannot be manipulated. But it's rather us living free of attachments and living free from the power that money can have over our hearts and our souls. So God wants something for all of us, not from us. And that's the first perspective shift that I think we need to make. God wants something for me, not from me. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and they that dwell therein. Everything belongs to God. God don't need nothing from you, but he wants something for you. And he recognizes and realizes the danger that money has to function as an idol in our life. Now, here's a reality about idols. Um, an idol is anything that we have made an ultimate thing. The thing that we go to for significance and security and really, anything can be an idol, right? So if you have a job that you love and you're flourishing in it, that job can become an idol and you can feel significant and secure because of your title and your accomplishments. Just because that job is functioning as an idol, it doesn't mean you should put your two weeks notice in tomorrow. If you're a parent, your kids can easily become an idol. And if you start to sense that your kids are idols, don't take them to the orphanage tomorrow and say, all right, it was good, come on, we're going. You're an idol. You have to go. Get, your, get, the, get the, uh, the goldfish and come on. Let's go. You're leaving. The idols that we live with in our lives, they're, they're always going to be with us. So I think the first and foremost thing is to realize that these things will always be around us and we need to be vigilant in how we handle the things in life, like money that will always be around us in such a way that will be healthy for us and also be something that glorifies God. Now, ultimately, as a people and as a church, can you imagine how the church would be known if instead of being someone, uh, probably the biggest institution in mismanaging money, that the church managed money well, and we managed money for the good of people and for the glory of God? Now, with all of us, God wants something for us, and in order for us to become a generous people, in order for us to become what God wants us to be, 
Um, I think we need to do a couple of things. And I love this one quote by Arthur Ashe. He says this, start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. Paul says something in Philippians 3 that I talk about a decent amount. He says, let us live up to what we have already attained. Start where you are. Now, for you today, the first thing I want you to do in order to start where you are, I want you to evaluate where you are. It's impossible for us to grow with respect to how we view and use money if we're ignorant of how we use money. So this could be a very helpful way just to literally go through your bank statements, your credit card statements, and to think about what you spend money on and does that align with your values. I once heard a preacher once say that in the American church where in America, where we claim to be a Christian nation, a Christian nation, uh, we spend more money on dog food than we do the mission of God. Now, I love my furry friends, so this is not a slap to, to dog owners or anything like that. We spend more money on dog food than we do the kingdom of God. What does that say about our priorities and our hopes and our aspirations? So the first thing I want us to do is to evaluate where we are. What am I spending money on? Does this reflect the values that I say I have uh, for life and for money? Number two, I want you to take a step of faith. Now, we're not going to have a $50 line then in the front and, and ask you to give money or anything like that. For some of you, really, the blocking to what God wants to do in your life is that you would not reach out and ask people for help. So you came in here struggling, and you're going to leave struggling. That's not God. That's pride. So if that's you, what I want you to do I want you to pray to God for ask for courage. And I want you to email Grace at Renaissance NYC. Tell people you're struggling. Let the church be the church. Let us be the hands and feet. Let us help you. Let us bless you. Let us walk alongside you. And for those of you who are not in that place, I want to invite you to start giving. Now, I always say this in messages like this. Um, I don't know right now who gives what. So if, I'm, if I've been looking in your direction a lot, I don't want you to be like, yo. <laughs> Yo, he saw me. My bad, Pastor. I'm going to do... I have no idea. In my brain, I know we are a very generous church, and I know how generous so many people are, and I'm not... This is not you, so I don't know who's giving what. No awkward handshakes on the way out the door. But I want you to give. And the standard for New Testament giving, in my opinion, is generosity. Now, people get caught up on, is it 10%? Is it 2%? Is it, uh, is it gross? Is it, is it net? What is it? The will of God for your life is not found on a calculator. God wants you to be a cheerful giver. Here's what my wife and I do. And this is a description, not a prescription. This is just me describing what we do, not telling you what you should be doing. My wife and I, after we, uh, have, we, we sit down and we try to give 10% of our income. And from that, after that, when other stuff comes in, we seek to be generous in general. And we seek to bless people who we know in our life. And you would be surprised if you pray to God and say, Lord, I want to be more generous. You'll be surprised how much clarity you'll get to those prayer requests. There are so many opportunities. Man, how many people don't believe that God loves them because the church doesn't love them? What would it do to someone's walk with God, their faith? If you reach out to them and said, man, man, the Lord put you in my heart. How can I bless you if you got it to bless? It would be amazing. And I want, us to, I want us to be a more giving people. I think Renaissance is a phenomenal place to give money to. 
And in a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing something to, to give money away. Uh, we'll be doing a, a campaign that we'll be announcing um, in a number of weeks. But if you don't trust Renaissance, give your money somewhere. Now, I don't know what number or formula for you resonates, but I do want you submitting that to the Lord in prayer and asking God, God, how can I be a more generous person? What do you want me to be, to be giving? Here's what I know to be true also. God calls us to obedience, and he meets us in our failures. There's a scripture in the gospel where Jesus is walking on water, and Peter, the bold one, says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out in the water, and I'll walk with you. And Jesus says, come. Peter steps out of the boat in faith, in a scary terrain, a place that he's never been, and he starts to look around, and he starts to sink. Scripture says, immediately, Jesus reaches forth his hand and grabs Peter. What happened? Jesus called Peter to obedience, but he also meets him in failure. He does the same thing with us. If generosity for you is a new thing, and you're saying, Lord, call me out the boat and I'll come, just know that Jesus is there with you. You're not going to do it perfectly, but that's not the point. God wants us taking steps of obedience towards him and let him figure out the rest in our life. So, uh, a memory verse I want you thinking about this week is 1 Timothy 6 and 17, and the part of it that says, my hope is not in riches, but in him who richly provides. That's a great memory verse this week. My hope is not in riches, but in him who richly provides. Now, the last thing I want us to do is to make sure that we are rehearsing the gospel in our life that tells us that God is the one who gives us significance. God is the one who gives us real, true security. We get generosity not because we are generous, but because, but because God himself is generous. So generous that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You want to know like real security? It's not that you have money in your bank account. It's that you are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us... Who can be against us? Now, we're going to take communion in just a little bit, and I want us thinking and praying about what it looks like for us to trust Jesus, the one who laid down his life for people who did not deserve it, the God who gave us his all, and ask us for a little in return. We would never be able, no matter how hard we tried, to repay God for all he's given us, no matter how hard we were to try. Now, communion is a practice that's been going on for thousands of years where men and women, just like me and you, have done something to remember Jesus, to remember his sacrifice, and that this physical reminder was feeding them not just their bodies, but also their souls. Uh, Heavenly Father, our dearest Lord Jesus, how quickly we are to forget your eternal sacrifice for us. How quickly we are to forget you on the cross, willing to give us your all. How quickly we are to forget you. So Lord, I am grateful for opportunities to be a reminder, to remember you, your love, your passion, your sacrifice, your devotion to us. Jesus, let that be the thing that fuels us, that we trust in for our security. Let that be the thing that fuels us, that we trust in for our significance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.